Lord, I pray that you would be with us in this time as we dig into Ephesians. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, it's good to see, it's good to see y'all. We'll be in the book of Ephesians, as Sarah just read. So if you do have your Bibles, uh, I would invite y'all to turn there with me. I want y'all to be able to see it with me. So if you have those, go ahead and turn there. Uh, as we finished up our fall semester, the Student Ministry Council, which is something I just mentioned, we were kind of just praying through, like, you know, we spent a lot of time in the Old Testament. We're like, what do we want to do in the spring? What do we want the spring to look like? What do we want to teach through? Uh, and a lot of questions that were coming to mind were, like, why do we believe what we believe? Why do we believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Why do we believe in justification by faith alone? Or another thing that came up is, why, what does the Bible say about relationships and marriage and sexuality? Like, what, are the, what does the Bible say about these things? want to know. And then we thought about like, what does it look like to live in our world and our schools and our jobs and our, all the places we go as a Christian in this really confusing world we live in? Like, what does it look like to do these things? And so we gathered these thoughts and we prayed about it. And the book of Ephesians just became very crystal clear to us because we love going through books of the Bible. And we were just like, what's a book that hits all of those themes? And we we're like, the book of Ephesians does. And so that's why we're doing it this semester. The book of Ephesians, if you're not familiar, was written, as we just saw, by this dude named Paul. Um, Paul, at one point in his life, was a terrorist. He was a high-ranking Jewish leader who would travel from town to town with a list of names, and he would go into that town, and the names were Christians, and he would go either murder them or send them to prison. So he was literally a terrorist. And then one day, he was heading to a town called Damascus, and you can read all about this in the book of Acts, specifically like seven, chapter 7 through 9. He's on his way to Damascus, and then a voice came to him. And this voice was the risen Christ, and Christ spoke to Paul, and Paul's name was Saul at one point. Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul looked up, and he's like, who, who are you? Who's speaking to me? And Jesus says, I, I'm Jesus, the one that you're persecuting. And so Saul, he's fallen on the ground at this point. He gets up, and he couldn't see for three days. And the scriptures say that on the third day, uh, something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight and on the spot was baptized and then called by the Lord Jesus to be an apostle. And from that moment forward, he went from Saul to Paul. And then he went not from town to town killing Christians, but town to town making Christians and became one of the most influential people in church history. And we'll go on to write about half the New Testament, including this letter that we have tonight. And you can read all about the story of how the Ephesian church was planted in Acts 19. So if you want to do some other study this week at any point. Go read Acts 19. You'll see how crazy of a story it is with the Ephesian church being planted. But here's just a couple basic background stuff you need to know. So one, the author is Paul. The date is like 60 to 62-ish AD. So about 30 years or so after Jesus resurrects and ascends to heaven. Uh, and then lastly, the audience is Christians in Ephesus. So that's kind of the basic outline of stuff that you need to know about this book. Um, here's a picture of where Ephesus is. It's in like modern-day Turkey. So you see right there, Athens, Corinth, and then over the left is Italy. So it's kind of like the left side of uh, Turkey there. Um, so right on the water, honestly, a beautiful place. When Paul wrote this, he was in a sort of house arrest. So he had been uh, kind of sent to prison uh, back and forth, and then he was in this house arrest awaiting trial. He was kind of in this intermediary spot waiting to be put on trial in front of this guy named Nero, which I've talked a lot about Nero to some of you guys. He was one of the most wicked, evil men that's ever lived, especially for Christians. And so Paul, when he's writing this letter, is waiting to go stand before Nero, probably handcuffed to a Roman guard, and is writing this letter to the Ephesians. Ephesus was a very huge commercial center. They were like Atlanta, New York. like They were a huge city. And the city was also very spiritual. It wasn't just like a, a business place. It was a very spiritual place. And it was so spiritual, actually, that they had a temple built to the ancient goddess Artemis. I have a picture of what her 
temple used to look like. It was this beautiful, unbelievable temple. And that's where people would go worship to. They would sell idols to go up there and worship to her. Uh, it was actually so big and beautiful that historians call it one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Like it was one of the biggest things. And Ephesus, the more I've been thinking about it this week, looks a lot more like world, our world today and our culture than I actually thought. Ephesus had a lot of culture. It had a lot of business. It was wealthy. It was really a booming place. And it was also pretty spiritual, which in false terms was spiritual. But they had a lot of belief there. One thing I'm seeing in our world, I don't know if y'all are seeing it, but it's kind of just getting harder to be a Bible-believing Christian in our culture. So, you know, one thing we're thinking about is how do we live in our culture, in our schools, in our workplaces? How do we live as Christians? How do we live believing what we believe? I mean, if, if I were to go on to the street or on the social media and say Jesus is the only way to heaven, that'll make some people mad. If I go on social media and write an article about how the Bible says marriage is between a man and a woman, that's going to make some people mad, right? And so what do we do about this? That, that's kind of what we're wrestling with today. One of the major defining features I'm seeing on social media is a lot of people are saying, you find your belonging, you find your purpose, you find everything that your eternity is made for by looking in your heart. That's what the world is going to tell you is look in your heart, see what your desires say the most to you. And then what you need to do is chase after those things. And then when, it, when you chase after those things, you'll find what your heart most desperately wants. And what the Bible would say is we don't look inside our hearts to find our greatest desires. The Bible actually says wickedness is in our hearts. And so if we look there, we're just going to find a lot of yuck. And so what the Bible would say is, hey, don't look in your heart to find purpose. Look at, look up, look to the person of Jesus to find your greatest love and belonging. So with that in mind, here's Paul's main driving force for this book. So this is kind of the point that we're going to be hitting on week after week. So the big idea of Ephesians, I think, is in our confusing world, we find all of our hope in the love of Jesus. And as we rest in that hope, we can shine the light of Jesus to our world. So what this is saying is that the world is dark, the world is confusing. And as we rest in our belovedness in Christ, we are empowered with courage to live boldly in the world of darkness that we live in. Does that, I hope that's making sense to y'all. And the idea here is, hey, yeah, the world is confusing. Frankly, it's probably going to get more confusing for a little while, especially in America. Um, and the temptation is going to be to fold back in fear. And be like, yeah, like I, I hold to like 85% of what the scripture says, but this 15%, uh, the culture doesn't really like that, so I'm just going to reject that. But what the invitation is in the book of Ephesians is to root ourselves in the eternal reality that God has called us to be his. And as we rest in that, as we rest in the one-way love of Christ for us, we're actually empowered with courage to face this confusing world and hold fast to what is true. And so that's what the book of Ephesians is going to invite us into. So let's read again verses 1 through 10. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined, we're going to talk about that big scary word, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons or daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, 
according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So that's a lot of verses. Point number one, big point here is we have been given completely new identities in Christ, not by anything we have done, but completely by the will or by God's sovereign grace. I'm gonna read that again. We have been given completely new identities in Christ, not by anything we have done, but completely by God's sovereign grace. And when I say the word sovereign here, I mean God having supreme power and authority. There's nothing he doesn't know. There's nothing that escapes his will. He knows all things. And not only does he know all things, he's actively involved in all things. Does that make sense? So when I say God's sovereign grace, that means God being all powerful, all knowing. It's that grace. That's where that grace is coming from. A few years ago, uh, Grace and I were babysitting my nephew, Wyatt. I got a picture of Wyatt to pull up for you guys. Um, this is Wyatt. He's a goof. Um, there he is, Wyatt, uh, in his Santa shirt. He's awesome. He, uh, he is full of energy. If you've met Wyatt, he is a comet. He moves 100%, 100% speed. He is going all in all the time. He loves big. He feels big. He's, he's awesome. Um, well, Grace and I, we were babysitting for him uh, one day about I don't know, a couple years ago, and we decided we're going to get some fresh air. Being inside with Wyatt is fun, but then you need to get him running, so you need to get him outside. So we decided, let's go over to Lewis Park, the park just down the road, and I'm pushing Wyatt on the swing, and then this lady walks up and starts pushing her baby daughter on the swing, and Grace and I are there, and so we just start chatting her up, and she's super friendly, and she starts talking about her husband, and she's like, oh, my husband's a pastor, and so I'm like, my brother, let's talk to him, where's he at? And so my guard is like, yes, like, I found a new friend, and so she's talking about him, and then immediately she starts talking about, like, where he went to school, which, where he went to school is where I was going to go to school if I were to have lived in Birmingham, so I was even more so like, who is this guy, where's he at? So we continue talking, and as it turns out, this family had been praying for a new nanny to come nanny for their kids. They had two kids at the time, and they were about to have uh, baby number three. And so they've been praying for this. And Grace, who had been looking for a nannying job, was like, wow, like, praise God. It's like, what an amazing open door. Like this Christian family is like inviting, kind of inviting us in. And so a few weeks and months later, Grace started nannying for them, and it was wonderful. But one thing we learned quickly was that their oldest daughter, Riley, was adopted. Um, and so she was adopted. They had brought her in. Her biological mother had some problems in her life. And so the mother actually made the really, really hard. And I cannot imagine how hard it was. The really hard choice to say, I can't raise this child. So I'm going to let somebody else do it that's better equipped than me. So they put her up for adoption. And then this family brought Riley into her family. The thing about these parents is that they had actually been like praying and training for this moment. It wasn't like they had just like magically woken up one day and said, I want to adopt today. Like they had been praying and training for this. They'd read all about the process, preparing to be adoptive parents, to bring a new person into their home. And Riley was just born. Like she had no say. She couldn't talk yet. She had nothing to offer. She just needed to be adopted. She was in a place of need. And when she was adopted into their home, everything about her changed. Everything about her changed. She has new parents. She has a new house. She even has a new name, right? Everything about Riley is different now. Her whole identity is different because she's been brought into a new family. And this is what the scriptures would say is true about us and our salvation. When we put our faith in Christ, we enter a new family. Scriptures would say that the father has adopted us into his family, meaning we have a new heavenly father. We've been given a new name. We've been brought into a new family. and We are now called beloved son or beloved daughter. And the crazy, beautiful thing is that we didn't do a thing to earn it. When we recognize fully that our identity is completely in the love of God for us, in the love of our Heavenly Father, there is only so much the world can do to shake that identity up, ultimately. Saying, like, my dad is the King of Kings. 
So there's only so much you can do to harm me. This actually kind of sets us free to really believe this. Like if we really root ourselves in this, like things in life still hurt, but they don't shake us to our core. So like if your coach benches you when you have just worked your tail off for that spot, it still hurts. Would rather it not happen, but your identity at its deepest core isn't changed. If you study really hard for that test and you still fail it, if you don't get into that college, it hurts, but your identity is not changed. If that friend group you've been walking with for a few years, all of a sudden today decides they don't like you anymore, it hurts, that stinks, would rather not go through that again, but your identity at its deepest core has not changed in that. If I, Sam Rapp, do a really bad job of being a student pastor, guess what? My identity hasn't changed, and that's good news. This is what adoption does for us. This is the language that we saw in Ephesians 1. This is what adoption offers. Is that no matter what comes, we are part of the family of God and nothing can change that. And that's just, that's just really good news. Another thing this ta- passage teaches us is this really big church word, predestination. Which, maybe you didn't like, think you were coming to youth tonight to talk about that. Um, maybe it's a word you've never heard of. Maybe it's a word that kind of scares you and you would rather kind of avoid it. Um, maybe you've never heard this word before. Predestination and election are huge biblical ideas that are very clear in the scriptures. And here's all I want you to know tonight about predestination and election. If you believe in Jesus, if you believe that Christ is your Lord and Savior, if you believe in that, it's ultimately because from eternity past, before God said, let there be light, he chose you to be his. That's all I really want you to know tonight. That before God created anything, he chose you by name to be his son or his daughter. That's just really good news. And he didn't choose you because he saw something potentially great in you. He wasn't like, oh, little Johnny is going to be really awesome for me, so I'm going to choose him. No, he chose you completely 100% based on him. Not at all based on you, which is just really freeing. When I was about five, um, here's a picture of me at five for some context. This picture cracks me up. There's there's me. uh, There's me at five. Good shark shirt and a lot of missing teeth and really big ears. Um, I'm not proud of it. Um, so I want to keep this picture up for a while, so don't take it down. So we're going to keep this picture up while I tell this story. So every summer, my family goes to the beach in Connecticut, and I've loved it. It's like my favorite place in the world. I've gone there pretty much every summer, I think, except for COVID year. Um, and we used to go and stay in this really beautiful old house. Um, in Connecticut, houses are just really old because it's an older part of the country, um, and so there are some houses you'll walk by that are like 300 years old. It's crazy. It's really, it's really pretty cool. So one summer, uh, when I was about five, I don't know, uh, I went up to go take a bath as five-year-olds do. And, um, I guess my mom got the bathtub rolling. I don't know. I don't remember. Um, I blocked this out of my memory. You'll see in a second why. Um, somehow in the process, little Sam got locked in the bathroom. Okay. Little Sam. I mean, look at that guy. Like what happened? Honestly, what happened? Um, he got locked in the bathroom. Now, on a normal day, on a normal day, like, that wouldn't be the scariest thing in the world, a five-year-old get locked in the bathroom, right? But when a five-year-old is locked in the bathroom with a, with a full bathtub of water, that's like, oh, no, right? Like, I don't know if you've been around a five-year-old recently. They're just not that trustworthy. I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't trust them all that much. Um, they don't have a great understanding of danger, right? Like, the water, oh, looks fun. But honestly, like, my mom and my family was pretty scared. <laughs> like, what if a little five-year-old jumps in the water? Like, what if I drown? Like, it could have been a lot. A lot of things could have gone wrong, frankly. I remember my mom and dad trying to give me instructions on unlocking the door, and like I was five, like there's no shot, like I had no idea what I was doing in there, um, <laughs> and so I, I'm stuck, I'm hopeless, I'm completely helpless. 
some time passes. And I remember, I remember really vividly holding my sister's hand under the door, which I think is really sweet because I was probably scared. And I was like, Abby, help me. Holding, this, holding her hand, and, you know, it's silly. So I'm scared, I'm freaking out. And then it happens and I see the bright flashing red lights from the road. And I'm like, my, my, my savior's here. And so fire truck shows up and firefighters like normally do re- like real stuff. Like they fight danger, right? Like they're, they're, you're fighting danger if you're a firefighter. Like they show up tonight, they get a call. Hey, we got a five-year-old in the bathroom. Like you got to come get five-year-old. It's not, it's not a, a pretty sight, you know? So they do, the guy props the ladder on the, on the wall and comes up and comes, gets me, carries me down. And my mom told me this week that they brought them brownies this week. So they deserved it. Um, so I get saved by the firefighter, you know, silly. Um, but what, what had to happen was like, I, I was completely helpless. It's kind of a silly illustration, but I was completely helpless. I, I could have done nothing. I, there was no checklist I could have done. I couldn't, I couldn't knock the wall down or the door down. I couldn't climb out of the window. Like there was absolutely nothing I could have done. Like there had to be an outside source that came outside of me coming into my helpless place and getting me out. And that's the story of your salvation. That's what Ephesians would say your salvation is, is, hey, you were in this helpless place. You were completely unable to do it. You were completely dead, unable to save yourself. No religious checklist could have done it for you. No amount of moral goodness could have done it for you. No amount of weird spirituality could have done it for you. No soul searching could have done it for you. You needed Jesus to come step into your hopeless place and invite you into life. This guy named Dane Ortland, this, this is how he explains salvation. He says, we were not drowning in need of being thrown a lifeboat or a preserver. We were stone dead at the bottom of the ocean. He pulled us up, breathed new life into us, and set us on our feet. And every breath we now draw is owing to his full and utter, utter deliverance of us and our helplessness and death. Jesus saves. So in predestination, adoption, election, there's kind of one big point. It's that God is the one who initiates. Like, yes, you still day-to-day choose to make decisions on whether or not you're going to follow the Lord and whatever. But in salvation, God is the one who came and grabbed you. In your spiritual death, he didn't leave you and abandon you, but he stepped in, picked you up, and brought new life into your heart and eyes. So the good news of that, since you didn't earn your salvation, I really want y'all to hear this. You cannot lose it. And that is some of the best news in the world. You cannot lose it. Let's keep reading. Verses 11 through 14. In him... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, listen to this, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So point number two for us tonight, we should have two points, point number two. There is nothing in the universe that can remove or separate you from the love of God. It's a simple point, but it's a huge point. And I really hope you hear it. There is nothing in the universe, like nothing in the universe, your own wickedness, your own wandering, your own doubt. There is nothing in the universe that can separate you from the love of God in Christ. I'll never forget growing up. My mom and dad used to tell me, Sam, we love you. And there is nothing you could ever do to make us not love you. I never forget that. It stuck with me forever. And my little brain couldn't wrap itself around that. I was like, I don't know how old I was, but like, I was thinking, what if I, what if I turn really mean? Like, what if I fail out of high school? What if I get addicted to drugs? Like, what if I, what if I kill somebody one day? I literally would ask my parents these questions. My dad and mom, every time would reply and say, doesn't matter. We will love you forever because you are our son. And my mom and dad are wonderful. And as wonderful as they are, are sinful, broken parents. 
And even in that, they could confidently say, no matter what, we will still love you. So how much more so can our perfect sinless father, can we have confidence in that? And we have this confidence because God is the one who initiated. God is the one in your sinful mess approached you by his Holy Spirit, opened your eyes to the beauty of Jesus. And it was literally nothing you did. But maybe you're here tonight and you're like, okay, Sam, like you say, you can't lose your salvation. But like, I regularly doubt if God exists. Maybe that's you. What, what if God, like what, what if I keep falling into this sin struggle or sin addiction? And I just can't get out of it. What, what if I don't spend much time with God? And what if I frankly don't really want to? What if I'm like really in my faith in middle school and high school, but then when I get to college, I kind of fall away. What about that then, Sam? Does that mean God will abandon me? Maybe these thoughts come to mind. Uh, a few years ago, three and a half to be exact, Grace and I got married on August 29th, 2020. Here's a couple pictures of us on our wedding day. Um, I think it's very sweet. Um, very sweet. So at, at this moment, at the altar, um, I know, very sweet. Y'all are saying all about me, I know. Um, <clears throat> so here's the promise that Grace and I made to each other in that altar on that day at that moment. No matter what, we will love each other relentlessly until death does us part, right? That's what, that's what the wedding promise is. Y'all are ridiculous. That's what the wedding promise is, right? Till death do us part, I am covenanting myself to you. Now, let, let me tell you all this. We'll close with this. I know me, okay? I know that I'm, I, I'm easy to love like 10% of the time. The other 90% is not as easy, okay? And what's happening on the wedding day is, hey, I'm going to be argumentative, I'm going to be a smart aleck. I'm going to be short some days. I'm going to get frustrated when I shouldn't get frustrated. And the wedding day says, hey, it's in the 90% when you're hard to love that I'm going to still choose to love you. That's what the wedding promise is. Now, if two sinful, messy, broken 23-year-olds on a wedding day can make promises like that, that no matter what, I'm not leaving, how much more confidence can we have in the perfect king of kings who is not, sin, who, who is not sinful, who is completely perfect, whose heart never changes. How much confidence can we have that when he began the good work of faith in our hearts will not leave us and let us out to dry? No matter your falling away, no matter your doubts, no matter how loosely you hold on to him, he is holding on to you so much tighter than you could ever dream. And that's one of the best things about the scriptures is that the God of the Bible, the God of the universe is so much more committed to you than you are to him. And there is nothing in the universe in hell or heaven that can separate you from that love. And that's what Christ has purchased. And that's how committed he is to you. That the God of glory stepped down and became a man and then lived a sinless life and had Roman nails pierced through his hands and feet, a crown of thorns on his head, and he was thinking about you on that day. Because why? Before creation, he was thinking about you. So certainly on the cross, he's thinking about you. And he's thinking about you in your messy spot. Not you in your pretty put together Sunday night spot. He's thinking about you on that Tuesday when you fall into that sin again. When you're struggling with doubts when you're 23. Like he's thinking about you lifelong in eternity. And that's the good news of the gospel. That he will never abandon you. Um, that's Ephesians 1 for us. Let me pray. Father, um, thank you so much that you never change. Um, the scriptures have 